Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. Today we are talking to David Chura, author of I Don't Wish Nobody to Have a Life Like Mine, Tales of Kids and Adult Lockup, published by Beacon Press in 2010. David Chura is a teacher, and for the past 40 years he has worked with at-risk kids, kids that are in the system, foster care, group homes, homeless shelters, drug rehab, and alternative high schools. David is also a writer. In this book, he compiles the stories of some of the teenage inmates he taught during his 10 years working in an adult county prison. Their tales are eye-opening and defying the commonly held notion that there are such things as bad kids. Chira shows, through his writing, the link between poverty and crime, and makes us rethink the increasingly common practice of sentencing minors as adults. David Chira also has a website called Kids in the System, Kids Caught Up, Locked Up in the Social Welfare System. It can be found at kidsinthesystem.wordpress.com. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon. Uh, We're talking to you about your book, I Don't Wish Nobody to Have a Life Like Mine, Tales of Kids and Adult Lockup, published by Beacon Press uh, in 2011. Um, So you've been working with kids who are considered high risk for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean, uh, high risk, kids at risk, high risk children? Well, when it comes to um, education, it's usually kids that have difficulty being in a um, some kind of larger school, um, sometimes beneath the, the, what, you know, the apparent problem are going to be learning disabilities, but often it's more issues of family problems, um, abuse, physical and sexual abuse, addiction, either themselves or their parents, and the behavior kind of manifests itself in the classroom. So that those kinds of kids are ones that uh, traditionally are either in in the real old days, they just were kicked out totally. But as Mm -hmm. we sort of hopefully progress in our thinking, uh, different programs have been set up. So I I really, all of my teaching career, I've worked with at, at-risk adolescents and um, in alternate, what we call alternative uh, community schools. So these would be kids who would be kicked out of their school and sent to our school, which was a much smaller environment. Um, the rules were pretty, they were enforced, but they were pretty uh, stripped down. So there was not a whole lot of of issues of authority, you know, and of power over over kids, and it was a much more of a community of learning as opposed to really kind of a big, you know, big structure. Um, mm-hmm. So that the, the risk really was, um, in some ways, the risk was that things were going to get much worse for them, and that there would this would present bigger problems. Um, and what happened was, for me, I kind of then encountered when I when I started working in the in the jail. I encountered kids who were exactly what everybody had worried about. You know, they sort of had fallen over the edge. Um, I often would say to people, you know, they're not at risk anymore because they've just, they're in risk. Um, they are risk, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and, and they, you know, so that 
so that those kinds of kids were the ones that were the most marginalized, you know, barely hanging on to society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and how did you end up working in the prison system? Well, I had been uh, working in a community alternative school for about, I think, 11 years or 13 years. And as as the the pressures of uh, a lot of the sort of educational standards and the standardized tests and 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 budgets started getting cut we began to have uh, problems in the school and the problems came from the fact that our staff was it was cut down dramatically and but yet we were getting kids who were you know pretty disturbed who had who had really significant problems and they weren't getting what they needed both in terms of uh counseling support um the class sizes got bigger, but then our teaching staff got smaller, so that the the community that we had started really being falling apart. And um, the really the trigger for me was that in a school that we had never had any violence whatsoever, there was a, a very large fight. Uh, the whole place just kind of broke out in chaos, and um, police had to be called. And I just kind of really thought, you know. It's, this is not a place that's going to get any better, given all the uh, budget cuts and the and the pressure. So um, I had always known about the program in the jail and heard very good things about what what was being done in terms mm-hmm. of create you know creativity with the kids and 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 really making making a big difference in kids' lives. So I thought, well, I'll just give it a I'll give it a try. So I I, wor- I then worked there for uh, about eleven years. Wow. Okay. Um, well, in the title of your book where it says Tales of Kids in Adult Lockup, I was wondering, are these jails, um, they're, they're adult jails? They're not places for, for young people, or yeah. are they? Yes, exactly. That's one of the real issues, and it's, it's one of the, the things I talk about in the book quite a lot, that these, like, these were not what we would call juvenile detention centers, which are really places for young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are, you know, it's staffed by people who are trained to deal with kids in trouble. And this was an adult jail. Um, and that has raised in the whole juvenile justice system a real a real problem for, for how things are, are going. Um, and so these are young people that were, some as young as 14, 15 years old, who were being sentenced uh, to a, some kind of adult some kind of um, prison time in an adult prison. So mm-hmm. that that really became, and that became a real, it, it, just about when I started working in the jail, <coughs> excuse me, that became really a big issue in, in, the, in the juvenile justice system, that more mm-hmm. and more states were, were sentencing kids as adults. So they were serving time in adult prisons. Right. And why do you think that shift began to occur? Like, why are more kids being sentenced to adult prison nowadays? Well, one of the things was going on is that I think it was sort of the, the in the middle of a lot of sort of social crises, one of which was the uh, AIDS, the AIDS and HIV crisis, so that mm-hmm. a lot of, for example, a lot of the kids that I dealt with, their families, um, they, they had lost a parent or both parents or family members to, to uh, AIDS. Um, mm-hmm. Also, there was people perceived that there was really kind of an influx in crime. And I talk about in the book that there was one particular kind of pivotal uh, moment in a way, and that is uh, it was around 90, 1995. There was a social psychologist called um, 
John Delilio, who wrote an article for the Philadelphia Examiner. Mm-hmm. And the title was The Coming of the Super Predators. And he set out the theory that um, there was this wave of youth crime. And his language was very incendiary and provocative. And I don't think he particularly was trying to do that, but the way he was describing these kids, that he was describing them as being you know, remorseless, um, they would do anything for, you know, just, just for the sake of doing it. And mm-hmm. this became a very much of a, a talked about article in the major uh, newspapers and uh, broadcast. And so this phrase, super predators, really caught on. And mm-hmm. essentially, people got very frightened. Uh, and when I say people, I mean the sort of general public. And yeah. as a result, uh, there was a lot of pressure on uh, lawmakers to, to do, you know, quote, unquote, do something. So we were sort of in this kind of, you know, the, the war on crime. It was, you know, we were going to, we had the war on drugs, and, you know, now we're going to have the war on, you know, war on crime, be tough on crime. So politically, it was a very, a very hot topic in a way. Um, so states just started changing the law where juveniles, where previously they would not be put in, in adult jails, they would be sent to juvenile detention centers, or they would be put in different kinds of facilities, that they were that the law that the age at which they could be held responsible was being lowered in, in some place some places very dramatically uh, many mm-hmm. states had it at you know 14 15 16 years old um, so that was why this it, tremendous influx of of uh, juveniles in uh, adult prisons happened and we're still in the middle of it we still have um, many many states still have those kinds of laws um, the state that I'm in, Massachusetts, they uh, still have they have 17. Uh, New York State, which is where I was teaching, it was 16 years old. And some states in this, like in Florida, it's it's very young. It's 14, 14 to 15 years old. Um, and so so it's it's taken a lot for states to really begin to examine this. So what you had was a shift from juvenile juvenile justice, in which was always had its focus on rehabilitation, to mm-hmm. the idea of just kind of punishment and retribution. And it really shook up the, the juvenile, and has continued to shake up the juvenile justice system and the people who work in it, um, because it's it's clearly a very destructive trend. Um, right. The belief is that they, you know, they're just, they, they can't be, they can't be, they, they just need to be punished, they can't be rehabilitated or taught taught any kinds of different behaviors. Right. Well, it, it seems like uh, this kind of punitive system, and you argue this a lot in your book, really only focuses on the children as being kind of the product of themselves, kind of like being bad seeds, which a lot of people believe that, you know, some some criminals are just like that. Mm-hmm. They That's don't look right. at all the factors around them. Um, so uh, in your experience, what are the factors that, that lead to this? Because you argue that this is very much not true, that this is mm-hmm. completely linked to a whole set of social factors. Yeah. And actually, it's very well said what you said in terms of that. You know, it's almost as though they were just, this is what their fabric is made out of. Um, and the, 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 the kids that I taught, um, invariably, if you looked at, their records, uh, or, or their, you know, their, any kind of any any intervention that's been done, 
most of them came from families that were uh, very, very fragmented, fragile, uh, single parent, many times raised by a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle. Um, mm-hmm. There and, and often that was the result of um, drug abuse uh, or alcoholism or disease with the parents. Um, kids were, in many cases, severely abused, uh, both sexually and uh, physically. And I have a story in, in the book of, uh, um, about a young, a young man who, at the age of five, his mother was, was taken away from him, and she died of an overdose. And uh, mm-hmm. he ended up being sort of shuffled from family member to family member and was very severely um, abused. And when he came to the jail and I encountered him, he was pretty actively psychotic. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a very dramatic case, but there were many, many of these young people who had had those kinds of traumas. Uh, many of them ended up being taken away from families, put in sort of the whole stream of, you know, first put in foster care, and then they, they acted out in foster care, and then they were put in, some, in group homes. Um, and then they kind of, many of them just either ended up in psychiatric hospitals, homeless, um, it was a real cycle of just going from uh, these different settings. Uh, and then until they eventually ended up in jail. And when I met them, many of them had been in jail, had been a part of the juvenile justice system from a very young age. So it was all of these factors, all this, this kind of background that just doesn't ever get addressed. Um, mm-hmm. You're talking about poverty. You're talking about an education system where uh, you know, the, the schools that they went to were overcrowded and they were, you know, they had no books and um, sort of all of the things that would end up shaping a person um, were manifested in what their behavior was. And often that behavior was one of expressing some kind of sort of frustration and anger and rage, or in some cases, just really necessity. You know, the kids that I met who were dealing in, in drugs, it was a source of income for the families. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also, I, have, I haven't mentioned also that in the in the jail that I worked in, and I think it's pretty well documented in in, in jails um, that I, you know at least probably 90% of the of the young people, or or just the people in jail to- completely, were uh, people of color. Um, so there was that whole race racism issue um, mm-hmm. that again was not a, was not addressed, and you know people continue to address it because it it seems to be a very much of a factor in who gets gets arrested and what kind of uh jail time that they that they do right yeah that's a very uh big problem isn't it the the uh the role of race in in all of this yes exactly yeah i mean the statistics are just amazing in terms of um if you you know when broken down state by state about who gets arrested uh and for example the county because the jail that I was in was it was a an adult county jail. The, mm-hmm. the county itself was predominantly um, Caucasian. The minority population was something like 12%. But yet, when you went into the jail, which had um, a couple of thousand people, it was predominantly African American, Latino, um, with the, some with some Caucasians, and. It, to me, that was just such a very blatant example of the racism. Right. And this ties into their um, economic conditions as well, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of that whole factor, you know, the whole the whole idea of of the, the, the neighborhoods that they grew up in, 
you know, mm-hmm. who are who are very poor, uh, drug infested, guns, violence, um, and many of them were really had 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 a, the experience of seeing, often seeing a friend or a relative killed in the streets, you know, mm-hmm. due to uh, either uh, gang gang activity, um, crime. So there, there was this this whole atmosphere of trauma for them that uh, just never got and continues not to be addressed. Right. Something that I kind of wonder is how did you get them to trust you as their teacher? Because I would imagine that at first they kind of had some resistance to you, or did you not find that to be the case? Well, you know, when I whenever I told people that I was teaching in a jail, their immediate assumption was it was a waste of time because these these kids, quote unquote, these kids um, wouldn't be interested in learning. And actually, it was very much the reverse. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there were a couple of factors that were working there. Is that the, the the prison environment and the prison culture is just one of real aggression, paranoia, um, and abuse of you know psychological, physical abuse. Um, mm-hmm. And so that these young people were living in this environment. So that consequently, what happened on the on the blocks uh, or in their moving around the jail is you know one of just always being suspicious being, you know, kind of arrogant and, you know, kind of projecting this attitude. And mm-hmm. school was the one place where they felt safe. Um, it was truly as though as though they could come there and be, um, you know, children. Um, right. And the, also the, the fact that, you know, my teachers and myself included, that, we, that I, I made a point of stressing the fact that as far as I was concerned, they were students. They weren't criminals. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in what they had done. And I gave them that respect. And in turn, and it's very interesting because they were able to really sense that, the idea that that they were being respected. Um, And outside the jail, they were not being respected. So Mm -hmm. that, that also kind of enabled them to be more trusting. So my experience was one of it was really a very positive experience in terms of teaching. Um, mm-hmm. These were young people who had dropped out of school, been kicked out of school, um, and they had never had any success. And and again, people's stereotype is that oh they're stupid, you know they they you know they're, they're not capable of doing school. They don't want to. And I mm-hmm. found that was very often not the case. That they were they were bright. They had native intelligence. What they lacked was what we teachers talk, can talk about in seat time, you know, being in class and doing what they needed to do. Right. And so they had no, you know, so jail was, here it was, it was an opportunity. And mm-hmm. I would say the majority of my students uh, wanted and tried and did take advantage of that opportunity. Right. And so did they, do these kids, do they, um, did they follow a regular school day? Um, or was it just like a, a small period of time where they could go and, and uh, you know, and, and have some, some teaching? Like, were they, did they follow a regular school day? Uh-huh. Yeah, one of the things, one of the, the blessings of New York State, which is where I was teaching, which is where the jail was, is that the educational law was that if a, um, a young person was of school age, so that would be up to twenty age of twenty one they had to be given they had to be given school mm-hmm. um with what was expected of them in terms of their high school say you know 
um, so that they really got in our program we would have you know a full morning and we would have a full afternoon so they would basically go to school from about eight o'clock until I think it was eleven and then they'd be back around twelve and they would be there until like two thirty um, so that they had full classes and it wasn't and 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 again I think it goes back to that the issue of why did they work is because the expectations were there it's like um, this was the way our the way the teachers defined it is this is a real school and we do real school work here it's not babysitting it's not entertaining right. so it's interesting how they would raise you know they would rise to those expectations hmm. so and we had well, and we had the and we had the requirements from the districts that they came that we needed that they needed to cover certain topics and they were held responsible for testing and you know the, the standardized tests if they were if they were eligible, you know, if it was time for them to take them. So it was, which kind of made the teaching experience um, sort of interesting because it was a very, it was a very hampering environment. Uh, there were many things that worked against uh, us mm -hmm. doing our jobs, but we did it, and I think that they, they sensed that and they appreciated that. Right. One of the um, the chapters that I found really interesting in your book is when you kind of when you mentioned the um the situation with when the chicks were brought in uh -huh, yes. and other kids in your um in your class reacted to that could you tell us a little bit about that yeah what it was is that we um i was in for a, a certain period a couple of years i was a part of a of a special of a grant program and it was still again it was still in the jail in the adult jail but these students were given very intense um sort of training they had a lot of uh, psychological help. Um, so one of the projects we did as a, as a class is that we had a science project and uh, we brought in uh, eggs, uh, duck, duck eggs, and they each were assigned to sort of take care of one of these eggs and we, uh, we while they were incubating. And then when the, then the, when the chicks were uh, hatched out, they continued to sort of follow that chick. So we, we talked about the chick dads, you know, that the, they were sort of taking care of them. And there was this incredible tenderness that just was an amazing thing to see. Uh, kids who had done some pretty terrible things and you know, just, you know, had had pretty disturbing lives. There was mm -hmm. just this incredible letdowning of guard, and they, and they were very nurturing and very protective and very proud. Um, and... There was one particular young man that I that I focus on who um, he himself came from a very, very, very sort of um, disturbed background. He had been really abandoned by his family and when he was in middle school. He essentially got kicked out of his house and he was living on the streets and um, had been in, in very serious trouble and been at Rikers Island. And he, um, and he was a thumb sucker. He was... You know this very kid, six you know, like six two, big kid, uh, and he sort of would would suck his thumb, and anybody make fun of him, he'd sort of you know lay him out. Um, mm -hmm. But he became the real guardian of the of the whole brood, as it were. And then when his chick came out, it happened to be one that was uh, lame, and mm -hmm. he he really um, he really just adopted that that chick, and did all kinds of you know, rehabilitation, as it were. We, we, we sort of showed him how to, you know, kind of strengthen the leg and whatever. And it, but it was this 
again, it was this identification. And, and for I think for many of them, there was this tremendous identification with these, this, this tender, vulnerable creature that they were responsible for. And then, and then we ended up, they ended up wanting to have a, a race. And so there was this whole issue of they, they, we set the chicks up and they, you know, they, they had a race. They had a race out of a particular circle. And the young man that I described um, worked magic and, and his chick was the one that won. Um, and so it, it was this kind of incre- this incredibly moving and, and touching sort of sense of triumph. One of the things he had said to me was, because it, it, there was sort of a festive a- a- atmosphere about it, was that he had never been to a party because nobody would invite him to his house, to their house, because he smelled and he had, you know, he had, his clothes were dirty and they were afraid he was going to steal things. And this was like the best party he had ever been to. And it was just, for me, such an eye-opener to how um, how depleted many of these kids' lives were from just the normal things that other kids experience and just the social things and then also just the emotional part of it. Sure. Yeah, it's like they were giving um, the love that they never had in yes. a way. Yes. A little, yes. Yeah. Um, you also talk about this kid, Jason, um, who I found very interesting, and you said that he was addicted to the jail system. Mm-hmm. Um, did you find many kids like that, and what exactly does that mean? Well, Actually, I did not find many kids like that, which mm-hmm. is my relief. Um, right. This was a, this was a young man who I, I, I clearly just never reached him, and and I don't know anybody who did. And he had been so accustomed and acculturated to the streets that it was very difficult for him to not be on the streets. And so, in a way, it's kind of a I don't know what the term would be, but it was almost like a reverse a reverse reaction to what in some ways was damaging and hurtful and many kids wanted to get away from, he had this attraction to it. So he, and and, and again, he was one of those kids where his, you know, his mother had been, addic- had, had been addicted. She died. He was taken away. Um, he had himself had a terrible uh, drug, drug addiction problems. Um, and and this addiction, it's almost as though the, the addictive personality just sort of picked up every negative experience and made it something that he craved so that he would set himself up. He would he would get into fights with guys that were bigger than he was, older, you know, older than he was. Um, and a certain, you know, sort of um, bragging about the places he had been in, the fights he had seen, you know, the, how terrible the jails were. So it was it was kind of a desperate and actually now I'm thinking of it, it's kind of was a kind of a desperate effort to claim some sort of identity for himself. And so instead of trying to do something positive, he kind of just latched onto the negative about I'm a t- I'm the tough guy. And it was interesting to me that he wasn't somebody who actually garnered much respect from kids or mm-hmm. or the or the the adults just thought he was just he was just you know a stupid kid. Um, because they, they, I think they were able to see the emptiness of what he was doing, um, and and he, one of the last I saw him was that he was on his way upstate to do serious, uh, what they would call serious state time, um, you know, for five to six years, um, and he was a young kid, and again his defense I think was that it was he was looking forward to it, it would be more exciting, you know, there'd be more fights, there'd be more kind of danger. Um, 
so that 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 ability that that addiction kind of really transferred into all the negative in his life and and he would never come to school um he just saw no value in it which you know when i think about it, it means he saw just no value to his life at all yeah yeah um do you think that is, does mental illness play a big role in these kids' lives as well, or do you think it's more um, a result of their social conditions? Because you did mention one kid who who seems to you know seem to have a some kind of problem that he would need to see his own reflection. Yes, and yes, you mentioned yes, some yes. of these kids were psychotic. Right. Yeah. yeah. Khalil was a kid who who clearly had. Um, some real delusional thinking and uh, his whole obsession with seeing himself. Um, and one of the things that became very apparent to me is the longer that I worked there is, was that the role that mental illness played. Um, I think one of the statistics I've seen recently was that a quarter of the population of U.S. Of US prisons have mental health issues. And mm -hmm. as you know, we, de we, we, we de institutionalized um, mental hospitals and you know mm -hmm. supposedly broke them up and put people into, into these community programs and and that effort clearly in certain parts of the population just just fell apart so that you get people in jail who are are there because of mental health issues as opposed to any uh, straight out sort of I mean their their criminal their quote unquote criminal behavior would be the result of those psychological issues um and one of the things that I found very disturbing when I was uh, working in the in the prison was the fact that the issues that, that the kids would come in with, the mental health issues, um, were not addressed actively. For example, many of them came in and they, I had kids who were on medication, who were, were on medication for depression or bipolar, um, mm -hmm different, you know, psychotropic drugs, ADD, and supposedly those medications should have been given to them. Um, and they weren't. And one of, the re one of the things that would happen is that there was often sort of excuse-making by the corrections department of paperwork was lost or they didn't fill out the right form or it just, it just got neglected. So mm -hmm. the result, as you can imagine, is, you know, a, a lot of acting out behavior. So it was behavior that was potentially easily curbed and taken care of as if they had gotten the proper medical attention. Mm -hmm. Added to that the fact that there was no uh, counseling services. So that being in, being in jail is stressful. Being a kid in jail is even more stressful. So that right. there was no help for anybody to sort of deal with those things. So the result was that you had you had, would have more fights. The tensions would be higher. Um, and it kind of just grew on itself. I had a young man who, it was, so, it was so graphic to me about what happened to him. He came in, and he was a very good student. He was very quiet, uh, very passive, never never really sort of involved with the other guys. And as I was working with him, I could tell that just something was going on. He always sat in the back of the room. His back was to any kind of door. And he would kind of stay after class, and he talked to me. And... He would. I, I could feel that. I could feel that he was getting something was going on with him. So I suggested that he talk to our. We had a really wonderful social worker on our staff. That he talk to our social worker. 
under the guise of saying, well, you know, you, when you get out, you want to get your GED, so it would be good if you talked with her. And and he did. He wanted. He he, he did that. And so she came to me at at the end of the day, and she thanked me for sending him, because this his story was that when he he was bipolar, that when he came in, he was on medication. He had not gotten the medication for several months, and he could feel himself getting crazy. That's kind of how he put it to her. And he could, and he was terrified. He was terrified of what he was going to do. And his his mom was an active mom, and she got in touch with corrections, and she was, you know, saying you've got to give him the medication that controls mm-hmm. his behavior. And she was getting nowhere. And luckily, the social worker was kind of like a bulldog, and she just went after all kinds of people to get this kid on his medications. But I was always touched by the idea that he talked about being terrified of what sure. was happening to him and the, and the consequences. I mean, he was a cognizant enough to know, I'm going to just do something crazy and, you know, mm-hmm. be thrown in solitary confinement, um, potentially get beat up, you know, just all kinds of things. So that those mental health issues unaddressed just add this extra layer of, of um, essentially abuse within a, in a pretty abusive system. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite unbelievable, all these different uh, diagnoses in, in one place and without the proper care. Yes, to, uh, yeah, yeah. To I mean, just yeah. the issue of somebody being ADD, having attention deficit, you know, I mean, just bouncing off the wall and just giving the medication and it's going to make your life yeah. easier, but... Uh, but it doesn't happen. It doesn't yeah. happen, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the um, you, you also, oh yeah, you mentioned solitary confinement. Um, what is solitary confinement exactly? And you do talk a lot about how it affects young people, especially. Yeah, um, solitary confinement is essentially there. There's two kinds of confinement. One is where it's kind of just a, what what they call sort of a, a disciplinary um, confinement, and that would be say somebody who got into a fight, and they would be put in a cell by themselves, and they would be there for they would be for 23 hours. They would be in their cell. They would have an hour out. They would have a half hour wreck, uh, wreck by themselves, and they would take a shower. And that would only, you know, that would usually last for a week to to a, to a month. Solitary confinement was much more dramatic. Um, it's really complete isolation, and uh, it, it can vary in different institutions. But the place where I was, they had a very um, they had 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 a very high tech, um, what they call a special housing um, unit, and Mm-hmm. It had the cells were designed in such a way that you could not a person in, in, a, in a, a, an inmate could not see any other inmate on, on the in any other of the cells. They couldn't see anybody walking down the hall. It had, they had the, the only way they could have any kind of sight line was if somebody stood right in front of their cell. This was a very very new new one. So it was it was glass, it was cement, it was concrete, and it was. Uh, and it was uh, metal, and they were locked up in that in, in that cell for 24 hours. Um, the reason why they could do that was because next to each individual cell was a unit, a small another smaller space in which they could do some kind of physical activity. They could do jumping jacks or, or whatever, um, so that they never left it. They everything was done in there. There's, there's their showering, bath, bathroom. 
if they needed to make a phone call, because legally, again, they need to have access to uh, legal aid or lawyers, um, it was all done within that, within that cell um, so that they would be isolated for as long as that they were in there. Um, and one of the things that was so striking to me was when I would have young people in there, again, because of the educational law, I needed to have at least some access to them. And I would watch their deterioration. Kids mm-hmm. who had been, you know, pretty pretty alert and took care of their hygiene and um, respectful, um, they would just end up. Usually, the first sign would be that they they would start to not shower and they would they would uh, then they would sleep all day and it was very hard to to get them to to rouse them. The only way I could talk to them was there was a slot in their in their in their in their in the door a metal slot where their food trade was put in and taken out. So I would have to get it down and sort of crouch down and we would talk through this, essentially like what's a mail slot, and we would sort of talk that way. Um, and it got to be very hard just to even get them to wake up. Um, and then and then what had happened is because they had no contact whatsoever, they they began to, inmates began to realize that they could talk to each other through their rec the rec uh, areas that they had sort of a screening up in the top so they could yell to each other mm-hmm. and one of the things that became so striking was that the if they weren't sleeping they were kind of screaming to each other and i used the word screaming on purpose because the communication was just you, you had to scream so loud that you really couldn't distinguish words or content in any way but mm-hmm. it was the idea that they were in making some sort of 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 communication with another person so that yeah. it was this it, it went from like people like sleeping all the time being really almost you know groggy to this kind of heightened chaos of sound um and and, and it and they they just they just slowly deteriorated and mm-hmm. after i had left i think it was a year or so after i had left the department of justice um had done an investigation for human rights uh, violations in that particular county jail and one of the things that they had discovered was uh, how juveniles between the ages of 16 and 18 were, were they were half the population. They were put in there more than the regular population. And the average time, and this still sort of just amazes me, the average time was 365 days. So these kids were in total isolation for that period of time. And one of the reports, that one of the, the reports that the that the investigators um, one of the results was the fact that these young people suffered um, incredible mental health deterioration because mm-hmm. they were isolated and they were getting no kinds of kinds of support um, and so and that's become a big issue in terms of of juvenile justice and in in, in across the country is the use of solitary confinement um, as a means of of discipline um, that young people are much more vulnerable because they don't have the resources that, say, an adult would have. Um, mm-hmm. They are just very fragile, and um, and it's a very, clearly it's very formative, and so that there's you know a tremendous amount of concern about what that does. Um, so for a year they would not have contact with another human being. Right. Well, the contact they would have would be, say, like if I, you know, a teacher was there, came and right. you know, I saw them. I would see them like every other day or something like that, with a, with a, with a correctional officer. Right. Um, yeah. So there, there was extremely, it was extremely limited. Wow. Yeah. I would imagine that those 
all the screaming and so forth would also be kind of a um, trying to, to validate the fact that they were still alive. Because if there's nobody around you ever, you know, at some point you you must begin to wonder, am I really here? Yes, Do I really yes, exist? yes. And that was yes. one of the things that was so striking to me was that even though it was, it was, you know, it was very clear that, that, you know, nobody could really understand what anybody was saying, but it was this issue of somehow they were making contact with another person. And I say, I say in the book, and one of the other things that was very striking to me was the fact that this was something that clearly Corrections was unhappy about. I mean, it was pretty deafening, and, uh, but they, there was nothing they could do about that. And it was almost a way for these guys to um, kind of give it to, you know, kind of you know, shove it to the, to the Corrections Department. You know, you, what are they going to do, go in and, you know, stuff people's mouths kind of thing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that this whole culture, and, and one of the things I write about in the book is that they, that there was a culture of solidarity within the um, within the solitary confinement unit in terms of that they they had limited sense of who was there. I mean, but it was amazing how they could figure out who was who just by this sort of screaming sort of thing. But there was this sense, and 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 I write in this in the the point of the story that I was telling is that the young person that I was working with was taking one of the, the state standardized tests. And somehow they kind of knew that. Um, mm-hmm. And the whole place got very quiet because clearly they realized that this young man was taking a test that was pretty important to him. Mm-hmm. And again, it shows this idea of the sense of community that, and, and kind of the amazing ability of people to form community under the harshest conditions. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was reading on your website about um, how some people criticize you for uh, basically, you know, they accuse you of caring more about the perpetrators of crime than um, than the victims of crime. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminded me of uh, Helen Prejean's story and uh, Dead Men Walking. Um, what 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 do you have to say to these people? How do you react to that kind of criticism? Well, you know, it's it's something that I have heard, and as I was writing the book and as the book was being edited and we were talking about publishing it, I, I kind of knew that there was, you know, clearly I would be the victim of, you know, myself of, you know, the kind of knee-jerk liberal and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But in thinking about that issue, I mean, about, you know, caring about the victims, because I do spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the the perpetrators, as it were, mm-hmm. from from a from actually from a, just a very practical point of view. Aside from the issue of feeling compassion for the people that have been hurt by crime, it was the issue of if you just look at it from a pragmatic point of view, that if these young people were not rehabilitated, that mm-hmm. it was, the crime was just going to continue, and for crime to continue, there's there's just going to be more victims. So in many ways, taking care of the young, the youthful offender was taking care of the, of the future offenders, mm-hmm. and it was it was something that I kind of came to, you know, because I had been, I, I think the, the the piece you're referring to is I had been confronted by a, a guy who really just kind of blasted me at a, at a reading, and it made me pause, you know. I really figured, okay, I, I got to think about this, and then that whole concept of, you know. Crime continues because of the way we deal with crime, and crime has to have a victim, and um, or often has has a victim. Mm-hmm. 
I actually had written another piece um, on Huffington Post, and somebody confronted me with the idea that you know, well, uh, it was a solitary confinement thing. Is that you know that that you know these people who you know you don't get put in solitary confinement if you know when you um, for, for doing nothing that you know if you if you you know kill somebody, rape somebody, you know shoot them, then you you, know, you deserve solitary confinement. And I was able to to respond to that comment, the fact that. Most of the young people that I worked with and the people the young people that were in the jail were there for nonviolent crimes mm-hmm. um and they were so they were victimless crimes um, and I have to say i give give the guy credit he he backed down he said, "Oh, <laughs> then they shouldn't even be in the adult jail um right. so I think yeah. it's kind of this knee jerk reaction from people of that that they've got to be terrible and horrible or they wouldn't be sure. where they are, yeah. I think it's hard to to understand, and when you look at the social factors, it's it's almost worse to think about how the system kind of fails them, and to think about them as victims as well, because that just makes the problem even bigger. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, my my initial title for the book uh, was called "Children of Disappointment," and I have mm-hmm. a chapter in the in the in the in the book that sort of talks about the evolution of that and. My realization of exactly what you're saying is that these are young people who from from a very young age had been really disappointed, let down by just about every adult in their lives, from family, teachers, to social workers, um, caseworkers, you know, all the people in the child welfare system, and that, you know, they really that's who they are. They are children of disappointment. And then I kind of made sort of my own bridge to that and to realize that then the people I was working with, the the correctional officers, Mm -hmm. uh, many of them came from very similar backgrounds. They just had enough of of either a person in their lives or a resource that they were able to kind of not turn the final corner. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And, and it, what really struck me was the fact that, you know, then the reality is that, is that every person is a, is a child of disappointment, but that for the, the, these young people, they they did not have, they had no advantages. Um, the social conditions were such that they there was no way that they could rise above it. Um, right. So you do believe that um, something small can make a tremendous difference? Yes, in terms I, yeah, of I do. Yeah. Go over the edge or not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have, I, there was a young person that I worked with. His name is Anthony, and he was a, a real example of that. His mom had, had been, he had been taken away from his mom because his mom was schizophrenic, and he was put into uh, the child welfare system, and he was raised in a very large child care institution. And he got, you know, he was involved in the life of crime. I mean, he did state time, and, but, in one of his sort of trips back to the county jail, something had happened for him. I think you know he had been in contact with school or whatever, and he he kind of he kind of turned a corner. And this is a young man who put himself. He he got his GED in jail. Then he got he got out, and with the help of the social worker and and some support staff, he got himself uh, into a community college. Then he got a scholarship to a four-year school. Then he got himself a scholarship to um, to go to um, graduate school to become a to become a social worker, and all the while he was doing this, it was that he was working two or three jobs, and he now is a, a social worker working with at-risk kids, 
But so he, there are success stories. Yeah, there absolutely. Yeah. Now, I mean, and, and the thing is that that the resources um, the resources are not there for every kid to get that because one of the mm-hmm. things that happens uh, pretty traditionally is that there's not when you're released from jail, you were just released from jail, and in, in, in the particular jail that I was in, you would be you would be sort of handed, you know, your clothes in a bag. You'd be given money for 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 the bus, and you were just told not to come back. Wow. So that you know nothing's changed. Nothing changed, and they would talk about that. You know, when I would see that if they came back, I, I would say, "What happened?" And and they essentially would say, "It was the same thing. You know, same same neighborhood, the same bunch of people." Um, I couldn't get a job because I was I had been arrested. Mm-hmm. So there were, and, and again, that sort of lack of foresight on society's part of thinking, yeah, it costs money to 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 give these people services, but again, if you want to go back to you know to, to the victims, if you're going to protect society, you need to get you need to make the changes so that these kids who are later who later than become adults don't sure. hurt people. Right. Yeah. Um, is there anything that um, we as individuals can can do to help because I think most people feel like it's something very far removed from them. You know, I mean, we don't really. Most of us don't have any idea what the system is like, or you know, we've never been near a jail or never been around these kids. Yeah, so, yeah. is there anything that the you know the average person can do? Well, I think one of the things that's that is apparent to me is is educating educating yourself about what is it's amazing to me that the times that when i've given readings or, or talks that people really will say i, I didn't know mm-hmm. um, and i think people don't know the abuses that go on um or, or the way that's just the way the system is structured so i think that paying <clears throat> excuse me paying attention to that is really important because the laws the laws cha- that changed that allowed us to put kids in prison was a result of public pressure. Right. And I think it's the same thing, that if if in your state, for example, um, you, you know, you get wind of the fact that there this is kind of a discussion, then it's important to let your legislator know and, and, and to kind of talk about it, talk about it with family members and friends. It seems kind of like a removed thing, but I think the system... There's actually some motion in the system, some some movement in the in, 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 and I think in society that there's a certain group of of society that begins to realize that just on a practical level the juvenile justice system isn't working and it's costing money, and so some like the Supreme Court, for example, has done several cases of of really sort of speaking out against, uh, for example, um, life without parole for in the beginning it was for for people who had, for young people who had not committed a, a violent crime, mm-hmm. um, and, and said that that was unconstitutional, those are kind of like little windows to me that there's some thinking going on. Um, but I think you're right. I think people feel like it's 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 not my kid. It's not it's not anybody that I know. It's not my neighborhood. But it is interesting to me as as I when I as I've done this the, the book and talked about the book. People who would come up to me and say, "You know, my neighbor, her son is in is in jail," mm-hmm. and we're not talking about we're talking about you know, my, my dental hygienist. You know, was was talking right. to me about this. You know, and it was very striking to me how it's like a light went off for her of like, yeah, this is not as foreign as it seems. 
Right. And one of the, to me, one of the scary things about the system is also with the laws the way they are, when I talk to a young group, I, I'll, I'll talk in, to, in college groups and stuff, and I'll say, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're 17 in, 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 in the state of Massachusetts, you could be arrested and you could be thrown into an adult jail. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like it's not it doesn't affect me somehow kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's partly just raising that awareness that um, because there, these people, these young people don't have anybody voicing these things for them. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I was felt very impelled to tell this to tell the stories um, of, of these kids to, to again, to put a face on it, to, to make it more human. That, you know, there are lots of statistics around, but it's kind of like, as you had said, everybody feels like it's, you know, it's too far away. It's got nothing to do with me. Um, right. And I think that there, there are a lot of factors there, and there are a lot of of things that are, of why people are the way they are, and that if mm-hmm. you don't really understand that it's people we're talking about, then yeah. nothing's going to change. Right. So if people want more information, they can go to, you have a website, correct? Yes, I do, yeah. It's www.kidsinthesystem.wordpress.com. Or you could just put in kids in the system Mm -hmm. and it comes up. Um, And that's one way. It's to kind of keep informed and and to know sort of what's going on. Um, And there are, there, you know, I've I've been sort of buoyed by the fact that I've, I've met, I've met, law students who are very interested in, in working in juvenile justice and uh, mm-hmm. teachers, social workers who are kind of getting very kind of aware and open to this. And it sounds bleak sometimes, but I think there are those kinds of, that kind of movement that can, that can make a difference. And the other reality is that what seems to move us in this country is economics. And it really is becoming pretty uh, financially irresponsible to just keep locking people up. Because, right. as I said to people, you know, the young people that we just keep locking up, they're good, they're getting older, and yeah. so it's going to you know, the jails are still going to be filled. Um, so, from a purely economic point of view, um, it, it, you know, things need to change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a really enlightening and terrifying conversation. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks. You have been listening to an interview with David Chura, author of I Don't Wish Nobody to Have a Life Like Mine, Tales of Kids in Adult Lockup. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology. See you next time.